Peter, who has long been associated with progress, has agreed to deliver the first of these lectures. Uh, I'm going to move straight to asking Peter to speak because I know that he has a long speech, he told me, a, an important speech, but also he has to leave at 20 to 1 for Cabinet, and I do want there to be at least some time for some questions and discussions. So, without any further ado, I introduce the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, Peter Mandelson. Stephen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for the invitation and the welcome. <clears throat> Obviously, I feel rather intimidated uh, speaking here at the London School of Economics uh, in view of uh, the Unite General Secretary Derek Simpson's description of me yesterday is thick, um, but obviously I'll try and struggle through my text as best I can. Um, before the summer, um, I said that uh, we in the Labour Party are now the underdogs uh, in politics, and I posed the question whether our response uh, to that fact was to give in to defeatism or to fight back. And I know what the answer will be from our friends uh, in progress. Uh, it is not a question of whether we fight back, but how we fight back, and that will be the subject uh, of my remarks uh, to you today. Now, the economic and the political uh, challenges uh, that the global financial crisis have presented to us are formidable, uh, but they are not ones that we in the Labour Party have been cowed by. They pose us with new tests of our policy resourcefulness and our character that we should be confident about as we frame the electoral choice the country will face in the coming year. This means new policies, not business as usual. The first step the foundation of all that we do must be to continue to set out clearly how we are taking uh, Britain uh, out of uh, the recession uh, through to recovery and build the new economy of the future. And that means continuing to provide real help for businesses and the unemployed. It means actively investing in economic growth for the future and it means a responsible plan, too, for paying down debt without eating into the fabric of people's lives. Next, it is imperative that we continue as a party to be the change makers in British politics. As modern social democrats, we must constantly rethink the role of the state in delivering our social objectives in new times. And finally, we must do more to take the fight to the Conservative Party. Now, what has been instructive is how the past year has exposed the limits of David Cameron's modernising rhetoric. The veil is being lifted. Their only answer to the global financial crisis has been of one of retrenchment, regardless of the social consequences, recalling conservative governments of the past. It is our job 
to expose them and the risk they pose to our economic future and the future of our frontline public services. Now, led by Gordon Brown, Britain has driven the fight back against the global downturn. Our efforts helped prevent recession turning into a 1930s Great Depression. But despite signs that the economy is picking up, our work is far from done. The task ahead is to build the new economy that will emerge from the global whirlwind that has hit us. There are three pillars upon which we build future prosperity. First, while the free fall in the economy may have been brought to an end, the effects of the recession are not yet behind us. This is why maintaining government spending and investment is vital. We know, for example, that to borrow the extra pound today in order to keep young people in work, in training and study, will save many pounds of extra public borrowing in future if our society ended up having to cope uh, with the sort of social catastrophe of long-term unemployment as we did in the 1980s. Second, government must actively invest in the economic growth of the future. It is growth that will be the biggest antidote to debt and will determine how far and fast we are able to pay it down in the future. We need continued government action if we are to create the right competitive conditions for the UK economy to generate future jobs. We are not advocating a return to the mistakes of centralised planning or an attempt uh, to pick winners. Rather, working in partnership with, with business, science and university research, the government should be backing the winning ideas and technology-based innovations on which our nation's future depends. And third, a responsible approach to reducing the fiscal deficit that will not eat into the fabric of people's lives. In order to fight the crisis, all leading economies have had to borrow more. We've seen that all, all over the world. The costs of not doing so would have been colossal in human terms and in the damage done to our economy, resulting in lost growth for many years to come. Our duty is not just to pass on sound finances, but also a strong society and a secure people with the capacity to prosper. So we must not lose our nerve in the face of high borrowing that we have had to take on to deal with the costs of the recession. But of course, there will be pressures on spending once we are safely through the recession. The Prime Minister has said more than once that cutting the deficit will mean tough choices. The Chancellor has already set a plan of how we will halve the deficit over the course of four years once we are through the recession. We will have to prioritise and we will have to economise. The choices Labour makes will aim to sustain our investment in the nation's priorities and approach of frontline first. 
Our top priority will be to protect essential services and activities on which the vast majority of people who, for example, cannot afford private education and private health care depend. The public can be assured that Labour's approach will be based on clear values and principles in order to ensure social fairness, to promote social mobility and find the cash for productive social investments in the nation's future, such as education at all levels, including early years, and also research and vital public infrastructure. Making these choices will not be easy, especially for a social democratic party so committed to public services as we are. As we take decisions, we must avoid falling into the political traps our political opponents wish to set for us. The Tories and their friends are yearning for people to think that because there is a need for public spending constraint in the future, we face an era of deep, savage, indiscriminate, across-the-board spending cuts, whoever is in power. The Tories contemplate this with thinly disguised zeal because as a matter of principle they want to create a small state. And we in contrast will continue to work hard to create the economic conditions that will enable us to maintain frontline service delivery. But we should also not allow ourselves to be painted as a party that is oblivious to economic conditions. That has never been the new Labour approach to our nation's finances under Gordon Brown, and it never will be. We start from a position of credibility, given that the big success story of British social democracy in the last 12 years has been the rescue, revival, and rehabilitation of public services as a vital part of our national life. Britain's welfare state and public services survived the Thatcher major era, but only just. Since 1997, Labour has, in effect, saved the NHS, transformed educational standards, and dramatically widened access to educational opportunity. These achievements are now taken for granted, almost discounted by those to the right and to the left of us. It has led to public service innovation with the introduction and dramatic expansion of sure staff and children's centres. For example, and modernised the delivery of existing services with the establishment of NHS trusts and academies. And all this has required a huge injection of additional cash. The new Labour mantra of, labor, of invest and reform summed up a policy which has seen public spending on the National Health Service double in real terms since we took office. Per-pupil funding in schools has also doubled. At the same time, public service delivery has been opened up to a diversity of providers with a new range of choice for patients, parents and service users. This was absolutely the right thing to do for our country. 
We did indeed fix the roof whilst the sun was shining, remedying the legacy left by our predecessors. Spending grew, not because increased spending was a political end in itself, but because this was required to correct the historic underinvestment that we invested, we inherited, and to respond to the public's demand for improved services. But even without the global financial crisis, public spending could not have continued to grow at the exceptional rates of the past decade. And having substantially renewed our infrastructure, our school buildings and our hospital estate, the profile of capital spending will not need to be the same as the last 10 years. It would not be right to turn the remarkable and necessary period of catch-up in public service provision over which Labour has presided into some kind of eternal doctrine that social democracy is about high growth in public spending for its own sake, against which everything else we do is secondary. Our 1997 manifesto described the new Labour approach as wise spenders, not big spenders. And this is and remains a core new Labour principle. We do not believe that we should try to solve problems simply by throwing money at them. We need to be effective state social democrats, not big state social democrats. And in this light and in contrast to the Tories, the defining question for social democrats in the future is how do we continue to deliver quality public services in a period of public spending constraint? We reject the argument of those on the right uh, who argue that the state is an obstacle to human freedom and who espouse a vision of the, of the good society based on a smaller state, shrinking public services and essential support delivered somehow through the voluntary sector with top-ups and opt-outs for the wealthy few. Equally, we unashamedly reject those who espouse the centralising or controlling state arguing that the solution to every problem in our economy and society is simply to have more state. What matters is not big or small government, but whether it values opportunity for all, responsibility from all, and fairness across society. Now, our conception of the role of government needs to evolve yet further. It is clear to me that we must continue to transfer power to parents, pupils and patients as we explained in our policy programme Building Britain's Future earlier this year. We must recognise that the solution to many of the challenges facing our country will have to be found in the communities in which people live, working in partnership with public services rather than an expanded central state. We should approach the task with the mindset of insurgents who are restless with the status quo rather than as incumbents. In the initial phase of the Labour government, 
We gave priority to centrally driven change through the national targets linked to increased spending. To achieve a quick turnaround in standards, there was no alternative to that at the beginning when we first took office. Then the emphasis switched to decentralization and devolution of power. The establishment of NHS trusts and school academies were powerful symbols of this switch. More recently, the government has emphasized the role of service guarantees and entitlements with means of redress available to individual citizens where services fall short. For example, the right to be seen within 18 weeks in the National Health Service or offered alternative provision. The right to see a cancer specialist within two weeks or to go private on the NHS. The right to a health check. Now these entitlements, backed up by the offer of an alternative provider if necessary, will ensure that future reforms build on the improvements of the last 12 years and there will be no going back under a Labour government in the future. Our plans to create real rights and entitlements are indeed the new frontier of public service reform. Labour then have always been committed state reformers and we should feel no nervousness about this label. Rather, today's challenges require us to accelerate the pace of reform. As Ed Ball set out last week, this will mean an expanded role for city academies to ensure that we continue to drive up school standards. Equally, Andy Burnham sees building on the Foundation Trust model as central to the future NHS. We will step up the pace of reform in the knowledge that we will sustain the national coalition in favour of public investment and public provision by ensuring diversity of supply and choice with services meeting the ever-rising demands and needs of citizens. These principles are key planks of Labour's plans for the next Parliament. There is still a large quantum of higher productivity and improvement in service standards to be obtained from the massive catch-up investment that public services have received in the last decade. We expect and ask for ever-increasing productivity in the private sector, and now that we have built up the infrastructure in our public services, the same expectations must apply to the public sector too. The huge catch-up investment in public services the government has made during the last 10 years should make higher productivity and higher standards possible even in a period of public spending constraint. And one of the keys to unlocking this potential is to put greater power in the hands of users over the services they receive. This means looking at areas where we can extend choice, diversity of provision and the principle of individual budgets. For example, we are working to give power uh, to patients through individual budgets for those with long-term and chronic conditions who can become expert in managing their own care. As recommended in the DASI report, 
We want to pay for quality, year on year increasing the proportion of the payments made to hospitals, which is linked to patient satisfaction and quality outcomes. The focus in building Britain's future on individual service entitlements can only be achieved with a new power for frontline professionals to trust their own judgment in delivering the necessary change. The way forward is not to get rid of individual service entitlements, as the Tories propose. It is to set a framework that allies these entitlements that the public rightly expects to the creation of a greater space for our public servants in how they deliver the services for which they are responsible. These are boundaries that we in government need to respect. If we want innovation from our public servants, we must ensure they have freedom and scope to achieve it. Of course reform is no panacea or easy solution to tackling uh, the deficit. And yes, sometimes reform does cost money. But a renewed focus on reform must be a core ingredient in the mix if we are to continue to deliver quality public services in a different climate for public spending. And I'm determined that my department plays its part in this. On student support, we're targeting benefits to those most in need. There will be more shared contributions with government, employers and individuals, each contributing as in skills and university funding. We are working to simplify government as we are committed to do in our upcoming reform of the skills system and our continued drive for simplified business support. We will decentralise and empower as we will complete the transition to a demand-led further education system and a comprehensive review of the role played by national-level institutions such as HEPKI, the Skills Funding Agency, the Research Councils and Technology Strategy Board and their relationship to central government will have the aim of cutting out overlapping bureaucracy and duplicated programmes. So the new economic context presents a challenge for us and for every Secretary of State in his or her department. But it also, my friends, presents a challenge for our political opponents as well. Politics is about elaborating alternatives. And as we move into a new stage of the electoral cycle, as we're doing now, there will be ever-growing focus on the choice between the parties. I mean, assuming that is, of course, the media ever get round to opening up the debate rather than take the election's result for granted. When, before 1997, Labour moved to the centre, we were able to show genuinely different instincts on tax and spend, on markets, on trade unions, on public ownership, on defence, on education and public services. People knew our values had been adapted to modern needs. You could not say the same about Cameron's Conservatives, however, in 2009. Their instincts, it turns out, have not changed. The gap between the early modernising rhetoric of David Cameron and the entrenched instincts of his party has been exposed in their response to the recession.
Look at what has been kept from the first phase of David Cameron's leadership uh, in, the, uh, in the past year and what has been thrown overboard. <coughs> Gone is the pretense of public spending not being sacrificed in favour of tax cuts. Gone is the, sub is the support for the principle of tax credits and any meaningful language of concern for the have-nots in society. Vote blue, go green has been consigned to the wheelie bin. In contrast, KET is the commitment to an inheritance tax favouring the wealthiest few in society. KET is the commitment to a tax break for married couples, even there is no word on how it is to be paid for. KET is the determination to sit on the margins in Europe, whatever the cost to business and jobs back home. David Cameron has followed a policy of concealment, not change. But the two faces of his Conservative Party are increasingly on show. The one they want to present to the public of a revamped Tory party, and the other that betrays the reality of traditional right-wing conservatism. Most critically, a clear choice has opened up between the parties on the issues that will frame and decide the next election, the economy and public services, amongst others. Look at the Tories' response to the recession. Whilst Gordon, Brown and Alistair Darling took the decisive action needed, their opposite numbers were left floundering. David and George got the big judgments wrong. If we had followed the course the Tories urged on us, the recession would have been deeper and longer and the costs to our public finances far worse. We would have seen Northern Rock, its savers and mortgage holders, go to the wall. There would have been no funding for, for example, the Enterprise Finance Guarantee Scheme that has given real help to small businesses. There would have been no VAT cut to stimulate demand, as now everyone recognises it has done. And indeed, there would have been no money for the car scrappage scheme either. It's no use the Tories claiming different. They opposed the fiscal stimulus. They still do. And wanted to take £5 billion out of the economy straight away in the middle of a severe downturn. Economic lunacy. At the G20 finance ministers meeting last weekend, there was unanimity I mean, from all the finance ministers, from all the countries, that the stimulus was not only necessary and had prevented the worst, but that it should continue as well. Yet alone and in their haste for cuts, the Tories are arguing for its immediate withdrawal before recovery is fully underway. To do so when we are not out of the woods would risk triggering an economic relapse and would make the problem of tackling the deficit and bringing the the debt down in the medium term, more difficult, not less. It shows the risk the economic judgment of David Cameron and George Osborne poses to our economy. The same dogma which has seen them isolated in their opposition to the economic stimulus is now preventing them from having anything to say on how an active government needs to play its part in investing in economic growth for the future. 
I actually rather enjoy having Ken Clark as my shadow. But not because he has a single fresh policy or new idea to rub together, he hasn't. The fact is that a new generation of conservatives, perhaps I exempt Ken in this, is now foaming at the mouth with excitement at the turn of economic events. They believe this releases them from the need to remake the image of the Conservative Party as a nice party with a genuine concern for fairness and commitment to public services. Now, in their view, the economic crisis and its consequences allows the real Conservative Party to come out once again. It presents them instead with their longed-for opportunity to take forward the mission that Margaret Thatcher, Nigel Lawson, Keith Joseph and Norman Tebbit started in 1979, but failed to complete after 18 years in government. Now they see their chance, and it is clear that the modern Conservative Party, the face David Cameron does not want us to see, is seizing it zealously with both hands. If we have learned anything in this recession, it is that everyone needs the security of strong public services and active government, and not just the poorest in society. The Tory approach to public services is a direct threat to Middle Britain and the services on which families up and down the country rely. The consequences would be savage. That is why the Tories want to sugar the pill. An unspoken Faustian pact is on offer from the Conservative Party. The Tories will spend less on public services, but in return, less will be expected from uh, public services. Less will be required of those who work in public services. Less spending, less real reform is what the Tories offer. On the NHS, the cave-in to producer interests has been craven. They have sided with the BMA against extended GP opening hours. Difficult NHS reforms undertaken by the government have been opposed every step of the way by David Cameron. Instead, they want to turn the NHS into one big quango without any prospect of reform. And they would abandon the NHS entitlements that Labour has established including the right to see a cancer specialist within two weeks of diagnosis. The test for political parties over the next few years is whether they can make the tough decisions that protect the front line. It's clear from our plans to create real rights and guarantees in the NHS that we will do this. So why are the Tories so unwilling? Why do they want to scrap even the most basic guarantees? That is the question they must answer if anyone is to believe they are serious about protecting frontline services. In schools, the same principle is being applied, where the Tories are proposing to drop the SATs test in the last year of primary school. Accountability to parents, therefore, is to be sacrificed by them in favour of the producer interest. It's part of the same unspoken and the big claims made for Michael Gove's school reforms are undermined when the small print reveals that at the heart of them lies a £4.5 billion cut to the funding of school building projects. 
So let me say this to you in conclusion. There is a huge amount at stake. There's a real choice to be had between the progressive reform offered by Labour and the ideologically driven retrenchment and deep cuts offered by the Tories. Between policies to achieve economic growth and the Tories' abandonment of these in favour of free markets. And between Labour's priority of middle Britain and people's need needs for accountable public services and the Tories' desire to cut taxes for the wealthy few. But Labour will only win this argument by demonstrating its continued commitment to fiscal responsibility and to our remaining, the real change makers in British politics. That is our task, so let us start the fight back now. Thank you very much. Peter, uh, thank you very much indeed. We have 20 minutes, and I want to take uh, as many opportunities for people to put questions. So please, if you can keep your questions nice and concise, that will be great. I'm going to come, first of all, to someone right down here in the front row, and then there's someone up there with a sort of yellow shirt on. Uh, Linda Corsha, LSE and uh, Employment Concern. Um, your uh, emphasis, the subtext of your emphasis on diversity of supply is obviously the further privatisation of public services, which fits very well with the international trade agenda of which you are very aware as you initiated it, but you have kept hidden from the UK public, which um, includes not only the global deregulation, further deregulation of financial services, but also very importantly to people here and workers here, the entry of cheap labour into the EU as an element of trade agreements which you have failed to inform the public of. Um, Could you ask a question please? Yes. Do you not think that um, when your duplicity on this is actually out in the open, that it will destroy any last vestige of credibility for the Labour Party? Thank you very much. No one can say this is stage managed. Um, there's someone, someone up there. I, mean, I, mean, I was going to take three or four. Can, can I say it's the first time I've ever been accused of keeping anything from the British public. I've always been known for my uh, honesty and outspokenness. Um, but on, on the subject of trade agreements, you know, forgive me if I, you know, if I pass and move on. Uh, I'd be very happy to come back and defend my uh, record as the European Union's trade uh, commissioner, but I just don't think today is quite the moment to do so. Okay, we'll take the person up there. Sir. Is it not a conflict of interest having members of the Labour Party such as yourself and Ed Balls uh, meeting behind closed doors with members of the Conservative Party such as Kenneth Clark and George Osborne in the Bilderberg Conference each year? Okay. Um, there, take the, the man here with the blue shirt. Ed wasn't there this year, you know. <laughs> it's unfair to Ed Balls, and I won't accept that. You mentioned social democracy two or three times in your lecture. Um, you didn't mention the Liberal Democrats at all. And I know from the title of the lecture, I think the next word was conservative, but uh, I am vaguely a Liberal Democrat supporter. Are you just ignoring them, hoping they'll go away, or are you not worried about the 40-odd seats or whatever they might win? Thank you there are much. also independent candidates as well that might stand in the election. Let me take... There's two people up there. Let's take both of them. Um, 
Alexander Wilkin, one campaign. You went through a, a lot of the, the Labour record, but you didn't make any mention of international development. And I was just wondering if you could clarify, uh, poor people in the world have been worst hit by the financial crisis, and you were saying the Conservatives are ideological retrenchers, and they've committed to keep the 0.7 commitment on aid. And I was just wondering what the Labour Party is proposing. Thank you. If you could... Lovely. Peter, the Irish uh, vote on Lisbon... Uh, immediately before the Conservative Party conference, if the Irish vote in favour, uh, UKIP from the right and the media will play havoc with the Conservative policy on Europe. I feel we should do the same. Sorry, my name is Stuart Maxwell from Hackney South CLP. Um, would you be averse to stealing a Liberal Democrat idea and hold a referendum on Europe in or out? I'm 50 years old. I didn't vote the last time we had a chance to vote on our uh, membership of the European Union. Thank you. Peter, there's three, three big questions there. Let me come to you and then I'll come back to the audience. Okay, let, let me sort of take them in, rever in, in reverse order. I mean, I think that the, um, I mean, I was going to say unspoken Tory agenda is not really unspoken. It's sort of almost... Um, rather fulsomely declared is literally not to take Britain out of the European Union uh, but to remove our influence within the European Union uh, to cut our ties with uh, mainstream parties and governments uh, in the European Union and make us less able uh, to influence and shape the future direction uh, of the European Union and the European Union uh, is not only uh, responsible uh, for a lot of the uh, legislation uh, that we participate in framing uh, uh, in, its, in its institutions and therefore of profound importance to the British people and therefore of profound necessity for us to maximise our influence uh, so as to uh, help uh, shape it. But it's also the source of uh, the bulk uh, of our trade and millions of jobs for the British people. Uh, and therefore to declare consciously uh, that, uh, that, that the European Union uh, is to become some sort of uh, public enemy number one uh, uh, for a Conservative government, uh, should it be uh, elected, uh, is completely counter uh, to the interests of our country uh, and, and the interests of people uh, living and working in every uh, part of it. And uh, I, I think one has to take uh, uh, David Cameron at his word. When he talks about uh, this uh, senseless stance on Europe, he always ends by saying, and by the way, if anyone is any doubt, I really mean it. Mm. You know, as if anyone might doubt uh, his commitment to these uh, uh, policies, uh, given the forcefulness with which uh, he expresses them. Now, do I think that we need uh, a referendum on whether we should be in or out uh, of the EU? Uh, no, I don't. <coughs> I think there are uh, more important things and higher priorities uh, for the government, uh, for the public uh, to have referenda uh, on uh, uh, in the future. Um, and this would not be amongst my list of uh, uh, priorities. On international uh, development, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know of a government in Europe that begins to rival our last 10 years 
uh, commitment and spending on international uh, development. And incidentally, it's not just a question of aid uh, for developing countries. It's opening up trade for developing countries and allowing them uh, uh, progressively to integrate to the international trading system uh, rather than cutting them rather than cutting them loose and kicking away the ladder which we've climbed up uh, as we have used trade to generate prosperity for ourselves and which developing countries have every right uh, to use as well. I'm not an expert uh, in the small print of the Conservatives' uh, uh, position on international development, but I have heard people uh, observe that if actually you look uh, uh, at, the, at their commitment on international development, they're using that commitment uh, in order to direct and filter funds to all sorts of different uses uh, under the guise uh, of ring-fencing that spending commitment. Which brings me to the Liberal Democrats, uh, with whom we have shared values, um, shared um, positions on many issues uh, in the Labour Party, uh, but which uh, the Liberal Democrats would uh, fight shy uh, of acknowledging, because the last thing they uh, want to do uh, is to be associated with the Labour Party when they're so busy picking up Tory votes. Uh, and you have to accept this about Liberal Democrats. Um, they're looking for votes from whatever quarter they can uh, uh, recruit them. They will say different things to different people, as I know in, in my own former constituency, literally uh, different things in one end of a constituency uh, than another, depending on what ward they're standing in uh, when they're expressing their views. But if you're asking me uh, whether uh, I would like to see um, uh, the emergence uh, of a stronger, uh, future, progressive uh, coalition of people as opposed to simply parties uh, in this country, in this, in this century, the answer is yes. Uh, the Labour Party is not some sort of clan or sect. Uh, we are a party, uh, a national uh, uh, party uh, of people uh, whose support we want to attract from all parties uh, and none. Uh, that's how we organised uh, our election winning campaigns in 1997, in 2001 and 2005. And that's how we've got to do it again. Peter, thank you very much indeed. There are lots and lots of hands, and I'm going to do my best to take as many of you as possible. Can I take the woman in the front row here first, and then the guy in the white T-shirt directly in front of me? Um, you spoke about investing in Britain's future, and I trust that means investing in education, universities, for young people. But isn't the matter that basically young people are going to be the ones who are going to have to pay off this deficit in the future? And so we're basically, you're paying for us to clear up your mess later on in our lives. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, I think further more to that, there are over a million under 25s uh, unemployed at the moment and as Secretary of State for Business Innovation and Skills, do you think that these people out of employment, out of education need to be um, put back into those areas for sustainable growth in the business innovation and skills sector? Thank you very much. Uh, lady just here. A microphone should appear as if by magic. Um, and then I'll take someone at the top. Um, my eyesight's terrible. So there's someone there. Um, yeah, great. What about the gender pay gap and its cost to the public purse? As long as especially the private sector 
are allowed to get away with illegally underpaid working women whose children are therefore in poverty and therefore in receipt of benefits. Thank you very much. The person I set up there. Uh, Joshua Genner. Um, it seems to me for a long time now the left have been painting masterpieces in caves and the right have been finger painting in galleries and, and doing the better for it. So you touched briefly on, on the press's uh, unwillingness to engage seriously. How do we ensure that this happens before the next general election? Thank you. How, sorry, how do we ensure that what? That, that, that they do engage with these issues and the media. And the media. The media, indeed. I'll take one more at this stage, uh, straight ahead. Yeah, David. The microphone's going to the wrong person, but don't worry. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, DavidMartinAbraham.com. Um, I'd just like to um, ask Peter after that um, a wonderful presentation whether he thinks that the media are taking the agenda away from the Labour Party in advance of the next general election. Thank you. One more? Yeah, building, let me, let me, someone else from the top, because, um, um, yes, there's a gentleman here just at the very front of the top. Are you going to be able to save the Vauxhall factory? Thank you. Specific, very good specific question. And then at the back there, yeah, lovely. It's a good sort of gritty, <laughs> earthy question. <laughs> you, um, you kindly for the Tories there mentioned that they're... £4.5 billion school cuts would probably actually finance their married couples allowance. So uh, conversely, which, which tax will you raise in order to finance your progressive state reform? Right. Peter's building up quite a list there. I'll let me, can I take one more and then let you respond? As, that'll be it, though. So it's well, going to be the... What time the cabinet meeting just reminded um, It's just been postponed, so you can stay here longer. <laughs> You've got to go in 10 minutes. Okay. So we'll just, I'll just take one, one more. I'll take the... the in fact, let me, take, let me take the woman there, because... Will you support um, a referendum on the day of the next general election uh, on the voting system in order to try to do something to engage um, in politics, increase the voter turnout, and actually um, do something to put back some integrity into the political life of this country? Thank you. Apologies to you. <laughs> Sorry to everyone that I wasn't able to take, Peter. Well, I certainly think that we've got to address the crisis in our politics rather more fundamentally and rather more imaginatively uh, uh, than uh, um, the, the, the question of the price of salads and beer in the House of Commons. Uh, and it, I do think uh, that whilst our voting system has been tried and tested and has served us well uh, uh, through generations, uh, it has produced um, strong majority governments with a clear uh, view and idea of what they stand for uh, and with a clear sense for the public of what they can expect from those governments, which sometimes you cannot get uh, from coalitions, uh, which sort of you know, start uh, you know, with a sort of soaring vision and tremendous clarity, uh, but then sort of soon sort of uh, drop down into a sort of lowest common denominator uh, a, a form of uh, government, uh, which leaves people uh, both bemused and dissatisfied. Now, does that mean to say uh, that there is uh, no improvement at all that could be made in our voting system in our country so that people really feel that it's uh, fairer uh, and more representative? 
Uh, no, I don't think uh, we should reject uh, uh, contemplating any sort of uh, change, and I think that's something that we again have to uh, uh, address in the uh, coming uh, months. Uh, on tax rises, well, Alistair Darling could not have been you know, more honest and more forthright, whether it be in respect of the top-rate uh, uh, tax or uh, national insurance. But you know, I think that the um, um, priority uh, uh, will be uh, the scope that we can make uh, to switch spending, to find uh, um, uh, cost uh, savings and efficiencies, uh, i.e. changing uh, the content and shape and timing of public expenditure um, uh, uh, over uh, a headlong rush uh, to raise uh, people's uh, taxes. Uh, partly because the Labour Party, as a party, doesn't want to raise people's taxes, certainly for its own sake, but also we have to be conscious of the impact that that will have uh, on driving uh, growth uh, in the future. On Vauxhall, I believe that uh, uh, the uh, deal that has been made between uh, General Motors in North America and Magna International uh, will enable uh, both our plants in Ellesmere Port uh, and uh, Luton uh, to remain open, certainly for the foreseeable future. And I say foreseeable future because, as everyone knows, you know, there is overproduction, oversupply and overcapacity uh, in the uh, car manufacturing industry right across Europe and right across uh, the world. And I've always been honest uh, that changes are coming to this uh, industry. But on the other hand, these are plants which are highly skilled, highly efficient, highly productive, uh, and therefore if we're looking to uh, a, a, the, a business plan uh, from GM and Magna uh, that puts uh, uh, efficiency first uh, and viability and commercial interest for the new company as a whole uh, uppermost, uh, then uh, I believe uh, that uh, those, both of those plants uh, will be safe uh, in the uh, future. Now, there were two questions uh, asked uh, about the uh, uh, media. You know, obviously there is something uh, rather sort of tedious and boring about listening to politicians uh, uh, going on uh, about the media. Um, uh, uh, because... Um, you know, the, the public um, uh, rightly uh, demands uh, ideas, uh, honesty, uh, clearness from politicians uh, about what they stand for and what they're going to do, uh, not politicians going on complaining the whole time about how they're being distorted uh, and misrepresented uh, by the media. I would only just say two things. First of all, the next election is not a foregone conclusion. The next election is going to be a battle, and there's going to be a very important electoral uh, 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 battleground to be fought, uh, not on the trivia uh, that the Conservatives presently focus on, but some really big uh, changes in our economy, our society, uh, our political system, and indeed in our environment and our fight uh, against climate change uh, as well. Let's elevate this debate, uh, therefore, and let's ask the media uh, to focus on everyone's policies, everyone's positions, to give scrutiny, uh, not just to the government, as they rightly do, but to ask the, uh, the Telegraph and the Mail and the uh, Murdoch uh, newspapers 
to focus and give scrutiny to the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats' uh, policies uh, as well. Uh, I was uh, looking at the um, um, Daily Telegraph, as I do on a Saturday morning, um, uh, at the weekend. Um, <laughs> why? <laughs> and I think I saw no fewer than three articles uh, about or concerning or interviewing David Cameron, the Conservatives, both of which were accompanied by a logo, the Conservatives, their pathway to power. Now, is that a newspaper or a fanzine? Uh, I wonder. <laughs> so I just hope uh, that we can expect uh, a bit of scrutiny uh, and, and even-handedness and balance in the way in which the media help the parties uh, conduct this important uh, electoral debate. And of course, I entirely uh, agree with you uh, about the gender uh, 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 pay gap. And going right back to Barbara Castle and the legislation she introduced, uh, the Labour government's uh, position and record uh, has been second uh, to none on this. But you make a really good point, and that is about the private sector taking advantage of, of publicly provided benefits in order to underpay women and work. That's not fair, it's not right for the women concerned and the rest of the taxpayers uh, who have to fund uh, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this pay gap. Now, as for young people, I think that, you know, yet again, we were criticised uh, uh, by uh, our political opponents uh, for bringing forward the uh, young people's uh, guarantee of work, training, apprenticeship uh, or mentoring uh, uh, that we have uh, made uh, as part of our campaign uh, to back young Britain. They said the, the billions of pounds it would cost were not affordable and we shouldn't be making that commitment to young people. But I say that we cannot afford not to, for two reasons. First of all, the young people's unemployment of today uh, can very easily uh, become uh, the social uh, dislocation uh, 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 of uh, the future uh, and the turning of uh, young people put at risk uh, against the society of which we want them to become good, grown-up uh, members of. But secondly, it costs so much more in the future if you allow unemployment amongst young people today to become long-term unemployment. Who's going to sustain that long-term unemployment? We are. Those costs, we as taxpayers, are going to pay for it. So it costs very much more in the future uh, than what it costs today uh, to invest in proper provision uh, for uh, young uh, people. Which brings me just uh, to uh, the uh, last point. And you say, well, we shouldn't be um, spending this money uh, to get through the recession. I just ask you and others who are here and uh, outside just to consider for one moment what we would uh, be facing and contemplating as our economic future if we hadn't saved the banks. Now, it wouldn't just have been the banks that would have gone, it would have been millions of businesses taken down with them right across our country, with all the social and economic and employment consequences of that. So of course we've had to take on borrowing, and of course uh, our debt uh, has grown, although uh, still uh, lower than the average of most of the G7 uh, countries apart from uh, Canada because of the early uh, um, uh, uh, measures uh, that Gordon Brown took when he first became Chancellor to pay down debt in the earliest years uh, of the Labour government. And what Gordon Brown did then, he can do again.
Uh, he sees a big picture. He does take uh, bold decisions. He takes them for the long term, not the short term. But above all, he knows uh, that whilst, you know, during the course of this recession, we have had absolutely no alternative uh, but to take the uh, bold actions that we have, uh, actions, incidentally, which other governments in different countries of the world uh, emulated after we have taken them. He also knows that in the medium term, we have to rebalance uh, our finances. Uh, we have to introduce a proper deficit reduction program. But let's have a deficit reduction program, and not, as I say, as the Conservatives want, a public services reduction uh, program. That's not what the Labour Party stands for. It's not where the Labour Party is, and it's not what the Labour Party is going to do. Peter, thank you very much indeed.